This is a public service announcement with guitar. Welcome, welcome to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Garlock here once again with labor lawyer Ed Smith. All righty, Chris. Great to great to be back on the show. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I and did. Super. And I hope everybody out there had a great Thanksgiving. And I want to remind people, it's probably a good idea, whatever turkey stuff you have in the refrigerator, either throw awesome. it out or... It's gone. Yeah, bye. <laughs> Mine's in the freezer now. Got some turkey soup in the freezer. Gave some stuff away. But anyway, um, listen, good to have all of you back for our December installment of Your Rights at Work. And as you know, this is a radio uh, call-in show. So if you've got any questions about your workplace rights, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had, what if you have questions on whether I have them at all, now's the time to give us a call. We're here all all hour 202-588-0893 we always love to talk to people we love to answer questions we like to get in debates so again 202-588-0893 so what's happening chris operators as they say are standing by which means that uh, mike nacell is there waiting to take your calls folks 202-588-0893 hey we have got a great show but first we are, of course, a proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's 150 uh, Labor Radio and Podcast shows just like this. And you can check them all out, laborradionetwork.org. All right. Today, a good friend of mine, David Story, he is a defense industry worker. He's actually a fellow uh, Labor uh, Radio host, and uh, he's going to be joining us he says it's uh, time to cut the Pentagon budget. So we'll talk with David's story about that. And then we're going to catch up with a guy named James Schiffman. He's an associate professor down in Georgia. He was punished, Ed, when he spoke out about his concerns about lax COVID policies at his school. So we'll be joined with uh, uh, by James mm-hmm. Schiffman a little bit later this hour. Uh, but first... We are going to cover the uh, the week's latest labor headlines, and uh, here's just a couple for you. Uh, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, there's a lockout just started today, Major League Baseball. Uh, hopefully, everybody will uh, you know come to a deal. Uh, we'll probably get into that uh, as as that goes forward. But that just started today, so we'll we'll keep on top of that. Uh, there was a strike, actually. You might have heard about this uh, down at a West Virginia hospital. It's been going on for a month. Um, this is uh, uh, SEIU District 119. Uh, they just ratified a three-year contract. That's at the Cabell, I hope I'm saying that right, C-A-B-E-L-L Huntington Hospital in West Virginia, uh, that's 900 workers at Smith, so they got their contract after a month-long strike. So bingo bill to them, right? Yes, absolutely. Boy, uh, not easy. Four weeks uh, being away, and no. you know, healthcare workers uh, really—if they're striking, it, it really matters. There's there's a real issue there because they do not like to uh, go walk away from the hospital and, and the care that they provide for uh, patients. So kudos to SEIU. 
Now, here's one from your union, Ed Smith. Just came across my email this morning. This is from National Nurses United. Uh, today urged uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Uh, they say that they a new permanent <clears throat> COVID-19 standard for healthcare workers uh, is badly needed. Have you heard about this one? Just just came out today. Uh, I. I... I have not seen the uh, release, but I'm aware of the uh, intention to uh, uh, release it. Uh, and if you remember, last year we were trying to push for emergency yep. standards, and it took it took basically the Biden administration winning the election to get that done. And hopefully, uh, we won't have to wait another year for permanent uh, uh, for permanent um, uh, regulations. But it is sorely needed. And, uh, you know, this stuff is not going away. As you see, the variants just keep coming, unfortunately. Well, and that's what your union uh, was talking about. They said, you know, because of the, the um, Omicron uh, uh, variant and um, your, your president, uh, Zinni, how do you say your first name? Zinni, Zinni? Zenny. Zenny. Zenny Triunfo Cortez, president. Glad I remembered that. I would Thank not, you. Someone would have been <laughs> mad at me on Monday on my next conference call with Rutro. Rutro. Uh, anyway, what uh, what she said was uh, the pandemic is far from over. Unfettered widespread transmission has resulted in and will continue to result in the evolution and spread of new variants of concerns like Omicron. And nurses are urging OSHA not to let the hard-won COVID-19 protections uh, end, especially as we learn more about the latest variants. So uh, I, I guess... Chris, you can't not repeat that. I mean, the fact is, this is not ending. It's just not like you flick on a switch and that's it. Um, we're going to have to be very digi- uh, diligent uh, in fighting this uh, uh, virus. Absolutely. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by, by David's story in just a minute. But here's, here's a, one more story I want to talk about. And I, I want to get a little bit into the weeds because it involves uh, labor law, which is your bread and butter. Uh, You probably saw at least a headline on this. This had to do with um, a judge just ordered Google to disclose secret anti-union documents. And uh, Lauren Cowrie Gurley did a really nice deep dive in Vice earlier this week on this. And I I wanted to run this by you, Ed, because there's just some real just lovely labor law things here that probably are routine to you, but certainly kind of raise my eyebrows and uh, probably some of our listeners as well. So the National Labor Relations Board ruled that Google has to immediately produce more than 70 uh, subpoena documents related to its anti-union campaign. Now, so far, you know, pretty plain vanilla, sort of straightforward. Um, the secret anti-union campaign, you're going to love this, Ed Smith, codename Project Vivian. Project Vivian. <laughs> Maybe it should be Project Karen, but okay. My, by the way, my sister's name is Karen, so I don't like that term, but I think it is funny. Project, Project Vi- Vivian. I, I don't even know what that's about, but anyway. Maybe they had somebody's granddaughter or something. I, who knows? Somebody's that's got cool. way too much time on their hands. But here's the thing. They include internal communications and strategy documents, and they were created with something called IRI Consultants, a quote-unquote labor relations firm that Google uh, hired to craft and amplify anti-union messaging at the company. Now, here's, here's where we get into your zone, Ed. The judge wrote that Google <clears throat> sought to withhold the documents 
in ongoing court proceedings. Uh, this is related to the firing of four activist employees by improperly citing them as legally privileged communications with their attorneys. Now, do you, do you, do you see where this is going? Do you see what they did? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what they did was they passed these documents to their lawyer. They had the documents go to their yeah. lawyers. Once it goes to the lawyers, it's, um, what do you call it, privileged or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the claim. So very interesting. Uh, I'm surprised it's only 70 documents. I would think it'd be like 7,000. I think this, well, this was a process of a long, uh, you know, sort of, you know, narrowed it down. I think it, what they were doing mm-hmm. was they looked at these documents. Uh, let me see. There's another, uh, what, I think they might've been looking at a sample because uh, they had a, a special master, which is a great term of art, right? They appointed a special master. They looked at 80 of the withheld documents. They found that nine of them had been properly classified as privileged, right? So that means that what, 71 of them were just basically bogus. Now in his report, the judge scolded Google. Uh, He said that at Google's request, consultants from uh, IRI funneled the materials through outside legal counsel so the outside counsel could then forward it under privilege. So basically it was a scam is what yeah, I mean, you know, you, I guess you got to give it to them for some in, uh, ingenuity there, but it just shows you, the, <laughs> it just shows you the lengths and depths these corporations go to. And, and it makes me think, okay, wh- who else is IRI uh, providing support? I wouldn't be surprised if our friends at uh, Amazon uh, use some sort of service like that. No, and it's such an industry as well. It wouldn't surprise me either. But I just thought, you know, on the one hand, it's 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 just it's clever, you know. On the other hand, it's just so obviously bogus um, mm-hmm. and and abusing the system. And 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 you know, it was routine stuff that they were putting through. They just didn't want to share anything uh, and just keep all the stuff under. Anyway, I thought you'd yeah. enjoy that. That's well, sort of our labor law for the day. You know, it it it, it always surprises me that people don't really think that employers use tactics to fight a union uh, campaign. I mean, the average Joe is like, oh yeah, we should have unions, but a lot of people don't like them. And what they don't understand is that they're pressured, they're intimidated, they're given false information, they're given misleading information, and the companies will do whatever they can to stop a campaign, illegal or not. And if it's illegal, well, they just wait for the shoe to fall so Google gets to do this for how many years? A judge finally makes them turn it over, but at what penalty, right? So if I'm if I'm them, yeah, I'm gonna keep doing it because what's the what's the what's the downside? You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think the, I think there's basically no downside is is what I'm looking at. Um, but I mean, the good news is you know the board, uh, you know, which has frankly been fairly useless uh, most of the time, you know, under the Biden administration, is does seem to be you know, doing more. So that's a good yeah. thing. All right. Uh, hey, before we go to our first, before there that, um, yeah, just phone number. To the audience, uh, anytime you want to call in, uh, 202-588-0893 with any question. But obviously, we got David's story coming on, and um, if uh, you're interest is piqued by anything he says i'm sure he'd love to take a call and talk to you that's absolutely true you are listening to your rights at work chris and ed here to take your calls and talk about all things laborific 
And we're very pleased to be joined by uh, a longtime uh, friend of mine and part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, David Story. He's president of the Machinist Union Local 44 in Decatur, Alabama, also co-founder of the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. David Story, welcome to your rights at work. Good afternoon. How are y'all? Oh, I tell you, we're better for having you with us, brother. Better for having you with us. Good to good to have you. So listen, uh, a, a friend of mine sent me your terrific piece in The Nation uh, last week. A great headline, I'm a defense industry worker. It's time to cut the Pentagon budget. Subhead, limitless military spending doesn't help workers like me, green union jobs do. So first of all, t- tell folks a little bit about the work that you do there uh, down in Decatur. Uh, we build uh, rockets that launch the satellites for for NASA, for the uh, NRO, for various uh, defense-related uh, purposes, and for, uh, you know, the, the betterment of science as well. So, you know, a lot of your GPS, things like that that you use on a daily basis, we put those into orbit. Uh, the rover that's on Mars now that everybody kind of gets a kick out of every once in a while from the photos. That was, uh-huh. that was us. So, you know, we do a little, uh, about half and half, about half defense, about half uh, science and research. Love the Rover. I love the Rover. Yeah. Everybody loves it. <laughs> I want one. I want one. <laughs> so, so, so help me out. I mean, as my understanding is that, you know, people in the defense industries, you know, uh, always want more, 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 more. Right. But here you are saying maybe not. What's, what's, what's your thought? Yeah. Well, I mean, the basic premise is, is shifting away from the defense industry spending and moving towards sustainable energy. And, you know, we've got a lot of talk in Congress, mostly in the house, of course, about the green new deal and things like that. And that, that catchphrase kind of covers up for a lot of what actually goes on, you know, our, my, my uh, region was a, you know, a direct uh, recipient of the T- T- Tennessee Valley Authority uh, back in the 30s. You know, I, I grew up listening to my grandparents talk about how they didn't have power until the TVA come in because there was power here, but it was privatized power and it was mainly businesses and rich folks that got it. Well, we've kind of, we've relied on that. We've got a co-op. I pay my electric bill through a cooperative that I'm a member of, we own the cooperative. So our rates is lower than just about everybody in the nation. It's, it's a win-win for, for everybody. And, and there's a constant question of where do we get this money from? Well, we've got a bloated Pentagon budget that, uh, you know, we're, we're supposedly pulling out of uh, the middle East. We're spending, I think president Biden asked for 765 billion of uh, taxpayer dollars this year for for defense. And I'm just sitting here thinking, for what? And I don't think people, I've done the calculation before I came on with y'all and there's roughly 144 million taxpayers in the US. Just the defense spending alone, that's $5,300 per taxpayer that will pay one way or the other, either through their payroll taxes, through increased costs somewhere else, they're gonna pay that in defense spending. And I just think 
most people don't never put those large numbers. Like they, they don't correlate it with what it's costing them and what we're benefiting from it. Because in my opinion, we're not benefiting anything from spending the past 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan compared to what we could be benefiting by moving away from carbon-based uh, products and towards sustainability in the, in the electrical you know, field. Well, and I want to get in Smith on this uh, as well. And uh, just a reminder to folks, we are talking to David Storer. He's president of Machinist Union Local 44 down there in Decatur, Alabama. And he's also co-founder of the Valley Labor Report. You can listen to it online. That is Alabama. It's still still the only uh, union talk radio show in Alabama, I'm thinking, right? Is that... <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, but I think uh, Jacob just recently is in the process of cutting some deals with five radio stations across the state, so he's he's expanding. That is very good to know. I'm excited about that. We'll have to get him on to talk about that. Ed Smith, I know you want to get in on this conversation, and hey, listeners, you can as well, and Ed, tell them how how can they join the conversation. Yeah, please call up at 202-588-0893. And, um, you know, David, it's such a, uh, a large issue, both, I mean, both defense spending and, uh, infrastructure and the green deal, they're, they're, they're so large. It's hard to wrap our heads around it. And I think that's where the difficulty is, is saying, okay, let's shift some money. Uh, I remember there was a great movie with, uh, Charles Grodin played this economist in a movie with Peter Sellers, where he came in and said, okay, we're going to move here, move the money here. And he, and he solved the budget problems of the country in like uh, one week. Um, we know that doesn't happen. And- That's a movie. Ed. That's a movie. I just want to make sure. <laughs> right. Uh, maybe we need Charles Gordon. But I, I think, you know, some of the problems I see, of course, and, and I'm with you hundred percent on that, but I think some of the problems are, you know, you've got the defend defense industry lobbying. Uh, they are so powerful. They're probably more powerful than the NRA. Um, they're certainly more powerful than the teachers' lobbies. Uh, and then, so you got that. Then you've got, of course, defense workers who, uh, you know, went through um, base, reala- base realignment and closures back in the 90s mm-hmm. that devastated generations of families. And then you've got labor, quite frankly, because they're representing those people. And, and you, you know, some of your brothers and sisters, I'm sure in your state and throughout the country would take issue with that. They might not take issue with infrastructure and green deals, uh, green, uh, you know, and green new deal, but that's, that's how I see kind of the overall picture of the difficulty of this. I, I, I think I agree with you hundred percent. I've felt this way since I was probably 12 years old. Um, you know, dealing with the Vietnam War and then all these other wars that we never really should have been in. And certainly Iraq, what a what a colossal, you know, what that was and billions and billions of dollars spent. And I think you've got all these congressmen and senators that to this day probably regret regret their votes. But systemically, you know, how do how do we start, I guess, starting the discussion by producing pieces in the nation and the like is a great way to start educating. And then where, you know, how do we kind of, you know, get to the, get to that end end zone? Yeah. Well, tough going question. Back, well, no, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's tough at all to be completely honest with you. Going back to your first statement with uh, the, the Finnish industry has very powerful lobbyists. You're absolutely correct. And they're funded by our money. 
that is the problem with the defense industry is it forever is perpetual for every penny that it gets uh for example at my facility uh touch labor the people that actually the technicians that actually build the products that we make is three percent of the final cost to the american taxpayer three percent so where does the rest of that money go i don't know that's a good question some of it's going to ceos cfos some of it's going to lobbyists but everybody's getting a gigantic cut except for the workers and so you're right they are powerful but they're only powerful because we allow them to be because we pay them to continue to beg for more money it's almost like kids at halloween they run out they grab all the candy that they can get some of it's ate most of it's thrown away next halloween when the kids pull the plastic uh pumpkin out of their closet and there's still a half a bucket of candy in there they're like dump it so our so mom and dad will give us the same amount this upcoming year and that's the exact same thing that the the, the, the lobbyists do Let's, at, at the end of the year, you got this big chunk of money. Everybody's going, how do we spend it? We just spent a ton of it on new chairs throughout the facility, new Suburbans, which is good, but it's it's wasted money. It's not being used. Uh, and there's God knows how much is going into lobbyist pockets. Uh, the other part of that that you were talking about with a lot of the technicians and a lot of the people in that industry, these are... Tech, it's a technical field. You know, I'm an electrician. I was classically trained as a machinist. Most of the folks out there are coming out of the trades. There's nothing special about the work that we do that specifically produces this rocket other than we follow the blueprints and the drawings that's been given to us. That translates directly to renewable energy, whether it may be wind, solar, or whatever, uh, hydroelectric, those same, uh, the machinist union uh, just across the river from us works on TVA at the dam and they're constantly machining turbines and rewiring parts. So it's not like these jobs are going to be lost. The jobs are just going to transition out of defense and into a more sustainable uh, energy solution for, for America that's going to give back for for generations. I mean, if you look at TVA that was founded in 1930s, we are still in our area reliant on TVA and, and it is a zero sum cost for the taxpayers, completely self-sufficient. It pays for everything that it does. So that initial investment that was made there for the entire region of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, is still going strong and funding itself. You're listening to your rights at work with Chris and Ed. We're talking with David Story. He's president of Machinist Union Local 44 in Decatur, Alabama. So recently put out a column called I'm a defense industry worker. It's time to cut the Pentagon budget. Now, David, how big is your local? How many members you got down there? Uh, we represent roughly 370 members. And uh, not to put you on the spot, but uh, how, how do your how do your your members feel about uh, where, where you're at on this issue? Uh, well, needless to say, you know I'm in Alabama. Uh, I'm right across <laughs> the river from Huntsville, which is considered the Pentagon of the South. Yep. Uh, 
you know, there there is a thought that when you cut, when anybody wants to talk about cutting the budget for defense, you become anti-patriotic or somehow right. you become right. anti-American. And so needless to say, there's a, a, a small contingent and I'm, I'm fairly radical compared to most of my comrades here in the, in the state. But uh, it's the same thing that I always talk about. No one at, at my facility grew up wanting to build rockets for NASA. Uh, that we, we worked our way through the trades and it just so happened that, that this place, because we're represented by the machinist union, they've done a wonderful job negotiating benefits. It's the highest paid industry in the area. That's why we went there. No one, I mean, for me, I come out of the automotive industry. And the only reason I come out of the automotive industry into this is because of better pay and better benefits. I don't care if I'm working at a chicken facility, at a nuclear facility, or at a rocket plant. My main concern is supporting my family and, and, and to some extent doing what I feel is in the best interest of, of our fellow uh, people in the area. You know, I just want to jump in, Chris, because that's kind of what I was getting at uh, in terms of labor. You know, I think the only way we fight back against the, the powerful, be it, be it uh, the defense lobby or anybody else, is educating our members. And you're, you're doing that. Uh, and, of course, my concern is I think about um, in, in the medical uh, field, I represent nurses. And it took us a long time to get the AFL-CIO to get behind us on, or to get with us on Medicare for all. And the trades were a big problem. So I know this is a labor show and we, you know, spout how great we are, but, you know, sometimes we've got to expose our own bellies and how do we, how do you get the uh, Alabama state AFL to kind of move in that direction or have they been moving in that direction? I know we've done some help in, in, in nationally and certainly here in DC. Yeah, I mean, I'll say one thing about uh, Bryn Riley and the state fed here. They are very receptive to workers. So we don't have to do a lot of convincing with Bryn on issues that we believe are important. Uh, you know, I've heard from a lot of people across the nation with their state feds and with the national fed. Uh, but, man, I'll, I'll give it to... Uh, Give it to Brian. He's he's an older, old school unionist, and uh, he really believes in democracy in our state. And uh, you know, if, if I call him up for something, he's pretty receptive. So I don't think I don't think that's so much the issue. Uh, it, it's the fact that we're I think we're roughly around thirteen percent union density in our state. So it's not so much that he wouldn't support it. It's that really. He don't have the numbers currently. We've got to do a lot better job organizing in our state to be able to push these topics. So, David, one of your the things uh, towards the end of your column, uh, which I really recommend, and we'll, we'll put a, when we post uh, post this uh, on, the, on the podcast, we'll put a link in it so other folks can can read it too. But you point out that you're not advocating getting rid of the defense no. industry entirely, right? Correct. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be a need for defense. But 50% of the, of the discretionary budget is currently used for defense. I mean, 50%, and that don't even include veterans' benefits. That's another 8%. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. That's insane. Uh, when we consider, other than other than Hawaii in World War II, we've never had an attack on U.S. soil. Uh, I, you know, I just, I, I, I just don't get it. I, and like you say, I, I, and, and like I said in the article, I'm not for completely decimating the defense budget, but where we're at right now is is just, it's it's unfathomable, especially when we talk about things like Social Security. Every time something comes up. Congress wants to cut Social Security and talk about how bloated Social Security is, even though it's self-funded, it's coming out of our paychecks every week, Medicare in the same way. But yet, but the reason nobody pushes back on defense is because they don't see how much it costs us per taxpayer every year. And and I think if we if if we were to put that amount into somebody's paycheck and say, this is what you're paying in defense, there would be a quite larger outcry for uh, cutting defense. And I think that one of the things, David, is is that, and this I think cuts, and, and to uh, Ed's point to, well, that a lot of times, you know, unions are accused of, you know, feather betting or just, you know, only being self-interested. I think that was what was really interesting about you doing this piece, you know, you know, when you have, there's, there's plenty of folks out there that, that want to, you know, cut the, cut the budget. Uh, but to have somebody who's on the inside saying that it kind of makes you sit up and say, now, now hold up, you know, why, why is somebody whose job you would think depends on these dollars is sitting, you know, maybe that's not the best way to spend it. And one of the things you talked about uh, in this is that, you know, my fellow workers don't need a fatter Pentagon budget. We need good paying green union jobs and the economy that works for the many. So just in the couple of minutes we have left, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, just I mean, just like I said, real quick. Well, no, I, my opinion is if we will reinvest, shift a portion of this money into developing these jobs such as TVAs, uh, such as solar, such as wind, hydroelectric. The, the technicians that are currently doing the work right now will simply shift to a different industry. Uh, at, you know, and that I can't remember the exact number, but the amount of jobs that that industry would create as opposed to the defense industry was uh, substantially more. And we're doing something that will benefit all of our, I mean, everybody knows there's not a limitless amount of oil in the ground. We're constantly capping wells and moving to a different place. At some point, we have to come to the reckoning that we got to come up with energy some way. Let's, let's use the skills that we currently have to help future generations. And, and I don't think it's the same as the mine workers, the mine workers, do not want to go underground a half a mile underground and breathe these dust that make uh, black lungs for the rest uh, of their lives. They, they do it because this is the only thing that they have. So, I, you know, I'm not, like I said, I, the shift would be into a different industry away from what we're doing currently and into a clean industry. Swords into plowshares, at least some of the swords into some plowshares. Uh, Ed yeah. Smith, final thoughts or questions so, for... A couple of comments. One, uh, uh, the defense budget is indefensible. I would, I would, I would say. Um, there was a great book. There was a great book I read years and years ago. Uh, it was published in, I think, 1980 called Entropy. And it's by a guy by the name of Jeremy Rifkin. And it talks about 
the the um, limited amount of oil in the ground. And, and, you know, his solution at the end was like, we got to go back to the old days where we didn't have cars and didn't have any of this. Well, I don't think we have to do that because you, the points you're making, solar, wind, there's a lot of things we can generate power. The, the one final question I have is, you know, I represented uh, back when I worked for another union, a lot of defense workers. And I remember uh, down in Virginia, there was a base closure um, initially cuts of like 300 then cuts of 400 and then ultimately the base went away i think it was about 1200 people and of course their jobs were gone and they did a lot of similar work a lot of electricians different you know you had plumbers pipe fitters you know you name it and that economy was devastated the trick here is okay how do we how do we transition to make sure that david's story and his family, you, because the point you made is like, I don't care what field it's in. I got to pay, I got to, you know, take care of my family. So that's the difficulty I see in, in, in shifting that money. I'd love to be able to say, see a budget where a million, a billion dollars was moved from defense into this. And there were guarantees of union jobs and guarantees of like right of first refusal, things like that. Mm-hmm. So your thoughts on that? Well, I just say that's why workers need to be leading the way. You know, for for I'm 50 years old, and for my entire history, I've never seen workers leading the way on moving an industry out of one and into the other. And and a lot of it's because of apathy. A lot of it's because of afraid of being uh, being able to do something that they never done. But if if we use the workers to lead the way, and the workers have the voice, then there's not going to be a bunch of politicians trying to figure out how to shift money out of this into their buddy's pocket somewhere else. It's going to be <laughs> ensuring that we get a fair share of of that of that profits, and and also that that industry is created and not just demolish one and then shift it over into somebody else's pockets. David, before we let you go, I just want to have you put on your, your radio hat. I know you stepped back from involvement in, in the, uh, the Valley Labor Report, which you would, uh, co-founded, but I, I have to say that when I had first heard about there being, you know, a labor radio talk show, uh, down there in Alabama, I thought, whoa. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really, I mean, you actually, I guess you have double digits, uh, labor there, but I mean, Alabama not known as being a real pro, pro labor state. Just, just give, and, and you know, we we have our show here in D.C., which is obviously uh, very pro labor and, and labor friendly. Um, give give us a sense of sometimes. <laughs> sometimes it depends. It depends. But uh, give us a sense of of what it was like to be, you know, uh, doing a labor show on the air there in in Alabama. I love the. Uh, I love being on the show, and when we originally came up with that concept. I didn't think it would fly. And we, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, just being completely honest. Oh, yeah, no, I, 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 you know, I didn't either. Uh, but as we've gotten an overwhelming large amount of support from the labor community in our state, I mean, locals coming out of the woodwork to uh, help donate money and things like that. Uh, but the problem for me was it is so overwhelming and time consuming the amount of time (laughs) that yeah that you have to do researching and finding guests and i I, and my my daughters are getting ready to graduate and i'm the president of my local and i just thought i've got to uh 
I've got to do something and Jacob's going to continue with this show. So there's nothing really, uh, if I walk away, the show doesn't suffer, you know, and the labor movement in Alabama doesn't suffer. And it gives me an ability to focus more on my family and on my local here. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, when we went in, I thought we could spend a couple of hours a week and uh, enrich the local community with our ideas, but uh, that was very short-sighted on my part. Yeah, it, it, it looks easy from the outside, doesn't it, David? It always does, yeah. <laughs> Y'all make it look easy. Y'all, yeah, that's the problem. Y'all make it look easy for, for a layman. Well, but I got to tell you, you know, running a local, my hat's off to you, brother, because I I know a little bit about that. And and I wouldn't change change any of my jobs for that, uh, because even with a 300 member local, that might sound small to folks, but that's 300 folks that are dependent on you. So that's yeah, it's herding cats, 24 seven herding cats. And they got your cell phone number, don't they? (laughs) <laughs> yes, they got everything. Hey, Chris. Um, yeah, you know, I, I I have a number of friends from uh, Alabama and Mississippi, and um, you know, when I and a number of them are Republican, and some of them are Trump fans, and you know, but when you talk to them about their actual issue, and 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 they all, most of them hate labor, right? And then they they hear, oh, oh, your your nurses union. Oh, well, we need a nurses union. And then when you talk to them about their everyday issues. Um, and you and you don't use the term union, you find that there's a lot more common ground, yeah. regardless of whether someone's a Republican or Democrat. And we've talked about that in the show a, a number of times. So that's why, you know, in, in my opinion, I think that's why a labor show can work in Alabama, it can work in Nebraska, it can work anywhere, because if you talk about the day-to-day needs mm-hmm. of people and what brings home the bread and the toilet tissue, we all have that common ground. Absolutely. Well, David, it's great to catch up with you, brother. A wonderful article. Again, we will put a link to that uh, in our podcast version. Keep up the great work and uh, hang in there, brother. Thanks a lot. Thank y'all all. All right. That's David Story. He's the president of Machinist Union Local 44 in Decatur, Alabama, co-founder of the Valley Labor Report, Alabama's only union talk radio show. All right. Next up, James Schiffman, he's associate professor in the communications department at uh, Georgia College and State University in Milledgeville, uh, Georgia. It's kind of our southern show today, right, Ed? I guess so. Uh, but anyway, James joins us now. James, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Hi, Chris. Glad to be here. Good to have you with us. Now, James, you, uh, you've you been teaching and uh, down there uh, in Georgia, like across the country, the uh, the official approach to to COVID has been kind of all over the map. Uh, although I believe in Georgia, a bit more how do you say a bit more relaxed, right? Well, I th- I think one thing you can say about the way the university system of Georgia, which is the the state system that that covers the twenty six state institutions, including mine. One thing you can say about them is that they've been consistent, consistently bad, consistently <laughs> negligent, and consistently um, promoting the spread of a potentially deadly disease. And that's the only way that you can put it. Right. And so what happened was that you, um, they, they were basically just allowing 
uh, students back into school. They were doing, I think they were doing open rush parties, you know, I guess little, if any, masking, mm. uh, having, having in, you know, people in person. Uh, you decided uh, to go a different way. And can you tell people briefly what, the, what, what that way was? Yeah, well, what I did was as, as we got toward the, uh, we're moving toward the beginning of the semester in August, and the Delta variant was swarming all over the country, things were getting bad again. And the university was insisting that we're going back in person with no social distancing, with no mask mandates, with no vaccine mandates. I decided that this was just not going to fly for me, and I was going to defy the rules. And so uh, I took one of my courses online unilaterally, and I insisted that my students in my in-person classes, which are rather small, uh, mask up. And I went into the, I told, of course, told my students and I told them why I was doing this, was to, to try to do what I could to you know, keep everybody healthy. And so I went into those, the first day of, of classes on, on the in-person classes with the idea that if, you know, if I had any resistance from students, we would just uh, immediately go online. That would be it. But uh, they all masked up and some of them didn't have masks with them. So I provided masks for them and I have 100% um, masking in my classes, my in-person classes. And so this went along for, you know, we, we, and I told my chair, I mean, I was, was upfront about what I was doing. I was not hiding anything. So they knew. Uh, and as the semester progressed, I got increasingly angry, actually, at the way the university was handling things. Actually, the university system, it's... Uh, it's uh, the our local administrators are just taking orders. You know, it's sort of like the Nazi defense. I'm just following orders, um, which really doesn't fly with me. So um, I was getting increasingly upset about seeing all of these students uh, unmasked, except for in my classroom, pretty much. And so I wrote an op-ed piece for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution where I kind of laid out the, the problems I saw with what the university system was doing and talked about what I was doing in my classroom and a paragraph or two down in the story. And the very next day, I got word that the dean wanted to talk to me. I bet he did. Let me, let me just tell folks, the headline on this op-ed is, we are teaching in COVID factories. I'm sure you got a call the next day. <laughs> well, because that's the way I felt every time I came oh, in the sure. building here. You know, I felt like I am I am working in a COVID factory mm. because I mean yeah. kids were getting sick. And in the beginning of the semester in particular, you know, we were all getting these emails uh from student health services saying this student will be out for two weeks and you know they, they don't tell you, they won't tell you if, if the student has COVID or not. I mean, some of the students were telling me uh what what their status was. Um so, so yeah, so I wrote that article. Yeah. So the next so day, you, you, get the, you get the call that the, uh, your, the dean wants to see you. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's not to invite you to tea. No, it wasn't. But it was a, it was a Zoom meeting, by the way, not in person. <laughs> uh, interestingly. Interesting. Uh, and my chair was there. And uh, he, he tried three things. The first thing was uh, bargaining tried to bargain with me. He said, how about okay. if we put that? They were only concerned about the online class. That was the only thing that they were concerned about. They didn't care about the fact that I was forcing kids to mask up. That didn't come up whatsoever. 
although they claimed later that it did. It didn't. Um, and so the first thing was he tried to bargain with, how about a bigger classroom? Can we get this, cl- this, this class back in the classroom? And I said, well, no. Part of the reason why I took this, this particular class online was this is a portfolio class, a one-credit-hour portfolio class for the seniors. That's a required class. And they have to write, identify a job, write a cover letter, and I have to work closely with them on their writing. Sure. And I'd been teaching the same class for the past two semesters on Zoom, and it's ideal for Zoom, actually, because um, I could work, put them into small breakout groups. I could go from group to group and work, work with them on, on their, their writing and so on. And in the classroom, no matter what size, I wasn't going to get close to them. And I told the dean that. I mean, he seemed to understand. I said, well, okay, yeah. And so then he went on to threats. Number two was threats. Uh, While well, we may have to go down this route of progressive discipline, and the <laughs> university system had had put out this this notice or something. Nobody quite knew what whether it was a policy or what, uh, outlining three steps of progressive discipline, um, involving someone. The first step involved someone who said they were going to take a class online but hadn't done it yet. Then you would get a verbal warning for that. And if you took a class online and uh, you would get a written warning. And then number three was they could uh, reduce your duties or they could suspend you or, or put you on administrative leave. So I said, oh, you might have to go down this, this uh, progressive discipline. So I just didn't react to that. And then he tried uh, shaming. Um, we had earlier in the semester, in fact, the first week of the semester, one of my uh, department colleagues uh, resigned abruptly, and it was COVID-related because uh, of, of the COVID policies. And he said, "Well, your department's already hurting, and you know you're 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 understaffed, and you know if we went down the road with you, then uh, think what that's going to do to your your colleagues, you know, shaming." So I didn't really react to that, and so that was how the meeting went. So. Before we go on, let me just ask a couple of things. And, and of course, Ed Smith can jump. Uh, you can jump in any time. But I, I noticed what I was doing. Uh, this is not, you know, we were talking uh, with David earlier. This, this is not one of your more heavily researched show. But we, we do Google around a little bit and check things out. And I see you have you know, a pretty stellar track record as a journalist. You were a chief copy editor at CNN. Um, you were a staff correspondent for the Wall Street Journal in Atlanta, the Asian Wall Street Journal in Hong Kong, Seoul, and Beijing. Um, so I'm thinking you've got pretty strong journalistic uh, instincts and and training, which I, I'm seeing coming out in this interaction. That that's what I'm seeing, and, and I'm just curious as to whether you know you're, you're seeing that uh, as as well, or am I just imagining that? Um. What do you mean, Chris? I mean, in terms of, I'm thinking specifically of the places that you covered where you're dealing with authoritarian governments. Is right, right. Well, yes. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, my analogy for the university system of Georgia is they operate pretty much like the Chinese Communist Party. Right, right. Okay. They really do. I mean, uh, they, they work at the behest of the governor. And you could think of the governor as the party chairman. And you can think of the the USG or the Board of Regents as the Politburo of the Communist Party. They they issue orders, and the people down the line, namely the university presidents and provosts, who are like the local party bosses, they do they they sort of uh, say, try to 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 
to show the people above them how vigorously they're, they're in, instituting the policies. The difference is, is that at least here, they have been completely um, uh, over the top about how much they're implementing the policies. Whereas in the actual Chinese Communist Party, you have resistance sometimes down below. You know, there's a uh, phrase I learned while I was reporting there. It's that you have your measures and I have my countermeasures. Okay. <laughs> yep. And, yep. And that was told to me by a local party boss uh, involving a dispute over a hotel joint venture. So, oh, yeah, the, the center wants us to do this. Well, you know, you have your measures. We have our countermeasures. Here, they don't even have countermeasures. Interesting. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I was was I was reacting to is that if you've been and, and I've been to China and I've, I've seen some of this where there is all this bureaucracy that, and it, it looks, you know, from one angle, like everything is rigidly enforced. But one of the things is that when you have that kind of entrenched bureaucracy, people find ways to deal with it. And one of the things that we've been seeing and, and Ed, you know, Ed certainly told us stories about this in, in, in his field um, you know, people have different ways of fighting back. Ben, I'm sure you have questions uh, for Professor well, Schiff, uh, Associate Professor first of, Schiff. First of all, that was a great um, route to go down, Chris, and uh, I really appreciated your answers there, James. Um, fascinating. Uh, quite frankly, whether I think of it as a communist system or not, university systems, whether they're state-run or whether they're private-run, have always been... Um, about the big boss and you do what we want to do. And that's why they hate unionization. That's why they don't want the grad students unionizing. That's why they hate their professors unionizing. Um, My question is really more towards, I want to know the end of the story, James, because you're telling it great. Well, the story is still hasn't, it doesn't have an ending quite yet. I mean, they, they took that online course away from me. They removed me as instructor of the course and they gave it to one of my other beleaguered colleagues in the department who put it back in the classroom. Um, uh, a lecturer who had no, really no choice. Uh, uh, and, you know, I mean, I'm a tenured professor, so I have a little bit of protection, not much. Uh, and I've appealed. I'm, I'm working with our union. I'm a member, member of our union, the United Campus Workers of Georgia. It's great to have a union here, even though we basically have no rights. Uh, but our union is is a is associated with the Communication Workers of America. And I've been working with a union lawyer, and who's advised. And they're they're interested in the case. I'm not sure that they're going to actually take it or, or take it to litigation. But there are two issues that they've identified. They're constitutional issues. One is the First Amendment issue, because they only cracked down on me after I wrote that piece. Right. Right. That's very mm-hmm. clear. And uh, what I wrote was protected speech because I was talking about matters of public concern. And so the fact that they've cracked down on me simply because of what I've written, that's a First Amendment violation. The second thing is they do process violation. And I mentioned that that policy that nobody knows what a po- the dean in, in, in our in our meeting said, well, you know, we talked about this progressive discipline document. He said, well, it's vague. Nobody knows really how to interpret it. But, you know, we might have to interpret it with you. <laughs> and then they didn't even interpret it in the right way. They, they, they turned around and said, well, you know, that meeting that we had online, that was a, that was a verbal warning. Now, <laughs> under the policy, verbal warning is for if you have the intent of taking a course online. I had already been online for six weeks. So they're not even applying their own policies if they are a policy correctly. So that's a due process violation. Uh, 
So, so you know, um, yeah. So, so I, I just just to close this out, I, I appeal to the the dean. I appeal to the provost, and I appeal to the president. And just the other day, I got a, a you know, not unsurprisingly, a uh, rejection of my appeal from the provost, who said, "Well, you can have the legal office of the university system review this decision if you don't like it." And so that's where we are now, and and we may not need to do that because that it's not a it's a discretionary review on their part but you know the the wheels of justice move very slowly right i always let people know that when i handle cases for those for those of you in the audience that are not are not aware of this uh the state of georgia if you are a georgia state employee you can be part of a union but you don't have a right to have a collective bargaining agreement which means you do not have formal grievance rights which means you cannot take it outside the university to an impartial arbitrator so that's that's uh, one of the big obstructions that james is facing um you know i'm thinking that well 100 years ago people didn't have that right everywhere in this in the states and the way to, the way to do it is of course collective action i guess the difficulties i know in, in universities systems is because if you're not a tenured professor your job your neck is really on the line it has there been any um support from students from uh you know aclu you know the idea is you, you know i know you're down in georgia but georgia is changing and and, and uh, to me, this is this is an area ripe for internal organizing, if you will. Yes, uh, I've gotten a lot of support from students. I've gotten a, a lot of support from around the university quietly. Uh, but also, I've discovered, and you know, when when you do things like I've done, it's it gets very interesting because you 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 learn a lot of things. And one thing I've learned is that there really is an enormous climate of fear. Mm. here mm. among the faculty uh there really is and it's it's no way to run a university i mean a university should operate on the basis of uh, free expression free discussion about <laughs> whatever it is but people are just terrified just terrified of opening up their mouth yeah and and um uh angering the the, the administration and the usg now, I did find out, by the way, that that the move against me was not initiated. I have this from a from a source who who really should know uh, was not. In, I, which is, this is, by the way, not a surprise, but it was not initiated by anybody here at Georgia College. It came from the USG. From where I don't know. We're going to have to leave it there, but we will stay in touch and keep tracking this. James Shippen, thanks so much. Keep up the fight, brother. Thank you very much. James Schiff, Associate Professor of Communication Department in Georgia College, State University in Milledgeville, Georgia. And, you know, and I was thinking, you know, what he's doing there, it's, it's, uh, that's what he's teaching, you know, stand, standing right. up and, and being, you know, that's First Amendment stuff, basically. Yeah, stuff. you know, those obstacles of fear are, you know, they're all over the world. And uh, all right. Thanks so much. That hour flew by, Chris. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much to our engineers, Mike Nasella and Kalia. Take care, everybody. See you next week.